Much of what I've learned uh, about pastoral ministry, I learned from uh, a dear friend and mentor of mine named Jeff Arnold. You've heard me share uh, bits and pieces of stories uh, about my time with Jeff. He is my mom and dad's pastor uh, in the Pittsburgh area, and um, I remember in 2004 spending quite a bit of time with Jeff as I was trying to make sense of what I thought was a, a calling from God to be a pastor. And I was timid and afraid of that, not knowing kind of how to go about that. And so I spent a lot of time with Jeff, and he invested in me. He poured into me. He met with me. He had lunch with me. He read the Bible with me. He also invited me to shadow him. And in any area of, of work or profession that you perhaps are in now, this the benefit of shadowing uh, he allowed me to have a window into his life and ministry. And what I saw was the tender heart of a shepherd for his people, the love of a pastor for his people displayed through my friend Jeff. And so we would, he would take me on hospital visits. We would drive to downtown Pittsburgh to Presbyterian Hospital to see a member who had just undergone heart surgery. And we would leave there and in the way, on the way in the car, he'd have his phone and he'd be checking in other members and following up with them, encouraging them. We'd go to local nursing homes where members of his church were there as, as shut-ins, some of whom had the mental faculties to know who he was, others of whom did not, and yet he faithfully encouraged and spent time with them and prayed with them as precious blood-bought sheep that belong to the Lord Jesus, that have been entrusted to him for a time to care for. He allowed me a window into his life and ministry to see what pastoring is all about. I regularly think about him in various circumstances and situations that I and the elders have here in this church and think, how would Jeff go about this? How would he handle this? It's the benefit of modeling, having a window, a, a shadowing of a friend that you respect and who's cared for his congregation well. The love of a pastor for his people is a precious gift, and it's one that we see in full view this morning as we continue our series in 1 Thessalonians. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the letter of 1 Thessalonians. The Bibles we provided on your chairs, you can find that on page 986, page 986. And we continue this morning in our New Testament series in the book of 1 Thessalonians, a series that we've entitled uh, Power for Life, Hope, and Death. A power for Life, Hope, and Death. The gospel of Jesus Christ provides us power to live this life well, and it provides us hope as we face the reality of our death. 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, I'll read uh, verse 17 in chapter 2 through chapter 3, verse 5. And if you need a Bible, please take one uh, as a gift from us. There are plenty of Bibles in, in the lobby on the bookshelf there. Please take one of those hardback Bibles if you need one. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 uh, through chapter 3, verse 5. Paul writes, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us for what is our hope or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. Is it not you 
for you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. I want to unpack this passage in two parts. Two parts. First is the love of a pastor for his people. The love of a pastor for his people. We see this in chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. The love of a pastor for his people. And secondly, the importance of employing others in the work. The importance of employing others in the work. We see this in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And the overall theme is a pastor is called to shepherd his people and to employ others in that work. A pastor is called to shepherd his people and to employ others in that work, not to go it alone. So we'll talk about these two realities. First, the love of a pastor for his people. See this chapter 2, beginning of verse 17. Paul says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. Paul uses a strong verb, torn away from you, taken away from you. The, the, the original means to be orphaned, to be distraught over a sudden and intense taking away of a relationship. That's the idea. Orphan is in, in the word. It highlights the speed and the intensity with which Paul's persecutor persecutors removed him from Thessalonica. After three weeks, we see this in Acts chapter 17, three weeks of faithful ministry, the heat is turned up in Thessalonica. The hostile Jews there aroused a mob to chase Paul and company out of town, persecuting Jason, the, the host of the house church there. Persecution abounded and continued to abound in Thessalonica. They were ripped away from this fledgling church, this baby church, torn away, orphaned from it very fast. And he's deeply distraught over this involuntary separation that has happened between him and his people. Paul is pained in the removal. He wants to be with them, and he seeks to convince them that he desires to be with them. Though separated in person, he is with them in spirit. Notice what he says, though we were torn away from you in person, but not in heart. In other words, yes, we were physically separated, but we were with you in spirit, in our hearts, praying for you, desiring to be with you. Paul's desire was to get back to Thessalonica as soon as possible. He says, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. We made every effort to come to you. We took great pains to get back to your city. So it was not an issue of love or desire. It was an issue of opportunity. 
They simply couldn't go. They simply didn't have the opportunity. He says in verse 18, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Now here we get into the land of speculation. We don't know exactly what Paul's referring to here. Satan hindered us from coming back to Thessalonica. Well, how did he hinder them? Perhaps by some physical ailment, sickness. We don't know. There's really no indication that there was some great sickness in Paul or somebody else's life close to him. I think contextually, given what we've already seen in the letter, he was likely banned from the city in what we understand as a, as a legal restraining order. He legally, physically couldn't go back. He was forbidden from entering Thessalonica given the mob that was created during his three weeks of ministry there. And so it's likely that he is legally banned from going back. This fits the context of both Acts 17 and 1 Thessalonians so far, the context of persecution and affliction and difficulty by the political leaders there in Thessalonica. It was Satan's work because his pawns are the people, the hostile people towards Jesus and Paul and the gospel in Thessalonica. They're working in league with Satan. That's how Paul can say Satan hindered us because unrighteousness in this world is ultimately a work of the enemy that he deploys his minions to do his bidding, which is what happened in Thessalonica. So Satan hindered them, but Paul longed to be back with them. You see his heart beating for the people, long to be back there. He's trying to convince them of his love for them because the reality is, and this is a hard reality if you're a pastor, they doubted his love for them because of the distance and the time and the separation. And it pains Paul to experience this. So he's trying to convince them, no, 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 no. My desire is to be with you. I just didn't have the opportunity Unfortunately, this kind of doubt towards pastoral care can happen in a local church. I want to encourage you, in the course of your time at this church or some other like-minded church that the Lord takes you to, 1 Corinthians 13 says, love believes all things. And one of the applications of that love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, love believes all things, is that love believes the best about people. Sometimes in the Christian life and in local churches, we don't believe the best about other church members. Sometimes we don't believe the best about our pastor. Sometimes we don't believe the best about our elders. But friends, let me encourage you, love believes the best about people. Love gives people the benefit of the doubt. And so can I ask you, do you believe the best about people here at Beacon Community Church? Do you believe the best about your elders Dylan Cauley, Dave Raffensperger, Jason Pouliot, and myself. Do you give us the benefit of the doubt? Do you give other church members the benefit of the doubt? Love believes the best about people. Beware making assumptions before you have a conversation. Paul's trying to guard them against the assumptions that have been made. He's he's trying to convince them, no, 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 it wasn't a matter of intent. It was a matter of opportunity. I love you and I want to be with you, but I simply couldn't for this season. It's no reflection of my pastoral care. Love believes the best about people. Give one another the benefit of the doubt. 
In verses 19 and 20, Paul powerfully and beautifully expresses how much the Thessalonian Christians mean to him. He says in verse 19 and 20, For what is our hope, our joy, or our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. What is Paul's point here? I love you. I am proud of you. I rejoice in you. You are my joy, my crown. I can't help to think, but to think of my, my grandfather on my mom's side, my mom's dad. His name was Oki. We called him Pap. And he loved his grandkids. And I brought something that's very personal uh, this morning. <laughs> Might be comical, but it's very personal. This is my grandfather's hat. It's 25 years old. It has my high school and our, our basketball team, 1989, 1998, 1999, and it has every pin of my siblings and myself on here. There's my football, there's my basketball, there's my sister's volleyball, there's my sister's basketball. This was Pap's hat. He wore the flat bill before the flat bill was cool. And you could hear him coming as he was walking down the hallway because these things would clank, they would clank. Friends, we, his grandkids, were his glory and his crown. And it was literally around his head. And sometimes I would cringe, but I would never say, Pap, don't wear that, because he was proud of his kids. This is what Paul's saying. You're my glory and my crown, my joy. And I don't care what other people say. This is what I'm proud of. This is what I take joy in. I can't help but think of Pap Klein when Paul says, you are my glory, my crown. I'm proud of you. I love you. And sometimes that's what our children need to hear. That's what our church members need to hear from a pastor. I love you. I take pride in you. And though I may be a little bit embarrassing at times, I don't care. I take pride in you. That's what Paul is saying here, to express how much they mean to him. It's a powerful word here. When Paul speaks of his future hope of seeing Jesus Christ face to face, what does he say? On that day, when I see my Lord Jesus face to face, when he returns on judgment day, who am I bringing with me? The Thessalonian Christians. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? On the day that Paul stands before his Lord and gives an account of his ministry, he is bringing with him, as testimony of his faithful ministry, the Thessalonian Christians. You are our crown. You are the evidence of faithful ministry. You will be with me on that day. It's a beautiful picture. It's a commendation of Paul and his faithful ministry. And it's also an encouragement to the Thessalonians. Because remember, they were shaken by some sudden deaths in their midst, and they think that those people who've died have missed the return of Christ, somehow are going to be separated from Christ for all eternity, and they've begun to doubt their own security in Christ. And notice how Paul assures them, on that day that I see Jesus face to face, guess what? You're going to be there with me, because you're a fruit of my ministry. You're going to be with me. What greater assurance? I'm not going to just be standing there alone. You're going to be with me as faithful fruit of my ministry. What assurance? The ever-skillful shepherd assures his people where they were most shaken. They were doubting their security in Christ. They were doubting their salvation. He says, no, 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 no. You'll be with me on that day. 
It's an encouragement. What a word of hope that he offers, a powerful word of hope. They are his crown, his joy, his glory. The love of a pastor for his people. Number two, the importance of employing others in the work. The importance of employing others in the work. See this in verses 1 through 5 in chapter 3. Unable to go to Thessalonica himself, Paul wisely and sacrificially sends his understudy, Timothy, his disciple, his son in the faith who he's poured into and, and, and developed as a leader. We see in verse 1, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in the faith. Now, here we see the significance of sending Timothy. It was a sacrifice. Paul was left alone. Silas, the, the, the third part of that ministry trio, evidently went elsewhere. He sends Timothy north to Thessalonica, and Paul is left alone in the pagan epicenter of Athens to do ministry alone. It was a sacrifice to send Timothy, but he did it because he loved those people, and he wanted to encourage the Thessalonians in their faith. The significance of sending Timothy, it was a sacrifice. Paul sent his best. Timothy was not the bench player. He was not the B team. Timothy was his best. In fact, he writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, I have no one like Timothy. How about that for a word of encouragement? I have no one like him, and I'm sending him to you. Paul sent his best sacrificially. He was left alone. Notice the description, the title of Timothy. He's called God's co-worker. A stunningly affirming title for a disciple. God's co-worker. You can't get a higher title. A colleague of God in the work of the gospel, that's what Timothy was. Paul believes in Timothy, despite what others thought. You read the letters of 1 and 2 Timothy and a little bit of Acts you get to feel that some people had a negative view of Timothy. He was timid, a little bit shy, a little bit intellectual, engaged in these controversies and debates. But Paul believed in him. Paul poured into him. Paul was there when the council of elders laid their hands on Timothy to pray for him and, endure, and ordain him to gospel ministry. Paul believed in his understudy. I have no one like him, he says in Philippians. Well, what was the goal of sending Timothy? What was the purpose? Verses 2 and 3 here. To establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. Paul sacrificially sent Timothy to strengthen the suffering Christians in Thessalonica. To visit them. To spend time with them. To pray for them and pastor them. Because they're struggling. Their faith has been shaken through their suffering. Again, Paul stresses the fact that persecution is normal in the Christian life. That has been the recurring note these last several Sundays, hasn't it? Suffering is normal in the Christian life. We ought not think it's strange when we endure it. It's normal. Jesus suffered. Paul suffered. His people will suffer. Paul says, expect it. This is expectation management 101. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this, that is suffering. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Expectation management. Why does Paul do this? Because when you know it's coming, 
you can prepare for it and exercise fortitude just a little bit more. Through prayer, through girding each other up, supporting each other, when you know it's coming, you can embrace for it. Paul told him that it was coming. Well, though Paul couldn't go himself, he does send Timothy to visit them. He repeats that in verse 5 here. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Do you hear the heart of Paul? When we could bear it no longer, he's agonizing over their spiritual state. We could bear it no longer. We were worried about how you were doing, so we sacrificially sent Timothy to be with you and to exercise the ministry of presence, the ministry of visitation, in-person ministry. Paul's agonizing over their spiritual state. Why? Because he loves them so much, he's deeply invested in them. There's some tension here. Paul is certain on the one hand of their salvation. Do you remember what he says in chapter 1, verse 4? He says to them, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Their salvation is secure in the sovereign choice of God. Yet, here in chapter 3, he expresses concern about their spiritual state and the reality of their perseverance. I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Do you feel the tension there? You're called by God. You're chosen by God. But... I fear that the tempter has tempted you and our labor would be in vain. There's some tension here. Friends, belief in the power of God to preserve his people does not prevent us from expressing concern and prayer for people enduring on the pathway. Yes, we believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation, in his sovereign choice, in his care, but we must also pray for and express concern over people, over church members in their various spiritual states because the journey is difficult. John Bunyan's Pilgrim, Pilgrim's Progress highlights this so well. There are journeys. The journey is difficult. There are dangers along the way. And so Paul, is a, he's, a sure, he's sure of their salvation, yet he is concerned presently about their, their, their plight. And so he prays for them and he sends them his understudy, Timothy, to check in on them. Paul displays active dependence upon the power of God. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God carries us to the end. He does. But we need to be active, actively dependent upon God. He prayed for them. He sent his servant, Timothy, to minister to them. Active dependence upon God in our own spheres of ministry in our own sharing of the gospel, in our own discipling of people in our circles, in our own parenting. We are actively dependent. The Lord does the heavy lifting. He does the choosing. He does the sustaining. But he calls us. He uses us as his agents, as instruments, to help people get to their final destination of salvation. Active dependence. Active dependence. We work. God work. He does the heavy lifting. But don't be lazy and passive. He uses us to help people get to where he wants to get them. Paul exercises active dependence. He's a little concerned. He trusts in God's sovereignty, but he's praying, and he's pleading, and he's sending people to secure them in their faith. So he sends Timothy. We see here the power of the ministry of presence. The Christian life 
And Christian ministry is an incarnational ministry. And we know this all the more in these last three years. We had to, out of necessity, do online church because it's all we had. But in that, we experienced how woefully insufficient online church is. The Christian life and Christian ministry is incarnational. Jesus came as a person. He planted real churches with real people, Paul did. It's incarnational, life on life, people on people. It's not behind a hologram or a screen. For a time, we may have to lean onto these technologies, but the Christian life and Christian ministry is incarnational, people on people. That's how God changes lives, people on people. Loving conversation after loving conversation, concern prayer after concern prayer. The Christian ministry, Christian life is incarnational, the ministry of presence. Friends, never underestimate the power of the ministry of presence. When someone's hurting in your life, just go be with them. Don't worry about what you're going to say. It oftentimes doesn't even matter. They're not even going to remember it. Just be with them. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. The ministry of presence, just be with them. You don't have to say some eloquent thing. If the Spirit gives you words, say them, but just be with them. The ministry of presence is powerful, incarnational ministry, life-on-life, in-person ministry. There's nothing like it. Paul sends Timothy. This is important because they learned not to be utterly, solely dependent on Paul. They learned to be open to somebody else who is ministering to them. That is healthy. Because sometimes in the life of a local church or in our ministries, we can kind of have this Messiah complex that we have to be before people, and it's only me, the lead pastor, that can minister. That is nonsense. Yes, God has equipped me to do that, but he's also equipped me to raise up others to minister to you as well, lest I have some kind of Messiah complex. Pastors are not omnicompetent. Pastors are not omniscient. Pastors are not omnipresent. Only God is. We need to raise up and point other people to serve the church, lest we come across as that we are all things to the people. No. We need to learn to be ministered by the other elders and by the, the, the ministry of membership in the church. You're called to care for one another. I'm, yes, called to care for you. The elders are called to care for you. But you must care for one another in this spider web of pastoral care and interaction and prayer That's my goal, that's my prayer for you all, that our church will be marked by a membership care that is tangible and powerful and beautiful in helping all of us get to our destination before the Lord Jesus when he says, well done, good and faithful servants. The love of a pastor for his people and the importance of employing others in the work. All this is the heart of the good shepherd. My window into my mentor's life Jeff Arnold was just a window into the heart of Jesus. Jeff did it imperfectly. I do it imperfectly. We're simply under shepherds of the great shepherd. Our ministry is modeled after his. Jesus, the good shepherd, says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay my life down for the sheep. The ministry of the good shepherd was sacrificial, just like Paul's was. He loved his sheep to the extent of laying down his life for his sheep. That's the extent of Christ's love, the great shepherd, for all of us here. And maybe you've never trusted in Christ as your good shepherd. Friend, he loves you more than you know. 
He desires to shepherd you and guide you along the dangerous pathways of life to set your feet on solid ground before him, to save you eternally. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Are you hearing his voice today? He wants you to be his sheep. He wants you to follow him. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them from my hands. Oh, rest in the strong grip of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our good shepherd. He's the one who cares for us along the way. He does use the agency of local pastors and local churches also to get there. Praise him for his grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for the gift to open it and to hear it read and preached. Lord, help us to be people of the book, people who long to, to get up in the morning and to open it and to be fed by it, people to, who, who long to share it with others who yet, don't yet know the love of Jesus. God, send us forth this week. Encourage us to shepherd other people here at Beacon Community Church and to bring others into the sheepfold as well that are not yet here. We're so grateful for uh, you, our good shepherd. Lord, we rest in your care. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.